Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning, those that are here in the room and those that are joining us online. Thank you, Matt, for sharing our scripture reading today. We are going to finish up uh, our series that we've been doing all summer in these letters of Paul to the church at, at Thessalonica. Uh, this has been good for my soul. I hope it has been uh, for yours as we've talked about what it looks like to have faith in, in uncertain times. And just like the, the church at Thessalonica, we we live in what, from our perspective, looks like very uncertain times. And yet, Paul wants to give them a certainty as he concludes uh, this letter. And as we look at this last passage today, uh, as I was beginning to, to study uh, th- this week for this passage, I began to look at it, and, and, and it's almost like, if you read it wrongly, that Paul ends this letter with a little bit of a of a letdown because he's talked about such big things in in chapter one his focus was on the the persecutions that were coming against the church and and the encouragement of the church to persevere through these difficulties that were costing some of them their lives but others their their livelihoods and and as he's talking to this persecuted church he he is reminding them of this glorious gospel that has has saved them encouraging them in perseverance and then we go into chapter two and he's warning them about false teaching that's coming into the church and and those who are teaching things that went against this good and and glorious gospel and he's bringing them these big warnings about remaining faithful to the truth in the midst of a rampant false teaching and then you come to chapter 3 after he's talked about these big issues of, of persecution and false teaching. And he basically ends this letter telling them they need to go get a job. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've driven through Hardensburg recently, but uh, there have been uh, some signs erupting all over the city of Hardensburg. Uh, I joked with uh, my wife yesterday as we were driving by Five Star right there on the corner uh, in, there in Hardensburg, and I said, uh, do you think they're hiring? They must have had a dozen now hiring signs lining their property, and you drive through the city, and, and here's the deal. If you're looking for a job right now, you can have your pick. I mean, everybody is hiring. Brandenburg Telecom, there's a sign in the window, now accepting resumes. And it's just everywhere you go, we're seeing the need for, for more workers. And yet we have sadly created a situation where folks are actually being encouraged not to work for various reasons. Now, we're going to talk this morning about the value of work as it relates to the gospel. We want to remind ourselves from the very beginning this morning that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works that come as a result of having received this great salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as Paul wraps up this letter, he's basically saying to them what I've entitled this message this morning. Folks, it's time to get to work. Get to work. And we want to talk about a theology of work today. I I wish I could tell you that I planned this so well that this this ended up at Labor Day. I really did not plan it that well. It just so happens we come here on Labor Day, a day when we uh, a weekend when we celebrate the American worker, and we're going to talk about what it means for us to work as the children of God. So, 
Pastor James Grant said that Paul is providing here, us here a, a theology of work in this passage. He's helping us to think about the relationship between work, the benefits that result from it, and its relationship to the peace of our community. Sin is not the reason we work. And I would want to underline and bold that and italicize it, whatever way I could emphasize that today, to remind us sin is not the reason we work. A healthy view of work and calling is rooted in a right view of creation. So we're going to run back to Genesis today to see the the roots of a healthy view of work. We are called to work because that is the way God created the world. This is huge. In a culture that seems to be running away from work and vocation, we as the people of God here in this passage are called to work, to work hard, to work well, to work skillfully to the glory of God. And so here's how Paul concludes this letter by giving us three things to think on this morning and three things to put in to practice. First of all, Paul concludes this letter by giving us an earnest warning about idleness. Now he uses some really strong language, especially if you look back to the original Greek here. He uses some really strong language, perhaps in some ways the strongest language of this entire letter occurs here in verses 10 through 15. This is military language that he's using. He uses that word command over and over again, a handful of times here. He uses this word command, which, which means uh, this is a command given from a superior officer to one below him. This is not a suggestion. This is a demand. And he uses that kind of language here in relation to this issue of work. And even as he talks about those who are idle, I know it translates the word, uh, the, the, the idle, or the, he's warning about idleness, but, but the Greek word there really is broader than what we think of when we think of the word idle. When I, when I hear the word idle, I think lazy. And that's part of what Paul's talking about here. But the Greek word that he's using is another military term, which, which refers to a proper ordering. It's one who is operating within their rank. And he's saying there are some among you in the army of the church that are not operating in their rank. They are literally disorderly. And it's causing problems in the church. Now, now we don't know exactly why they had this idleness problem In the church at Thessalonica, there's been a number of theories put forward. Some have said, well, perhaps it's because of their thinking about the end times. Paul had told them that Jesus was was coming again, and they believed that he was coming soon. We still pray today, come soon, Lord Jesus. But perhaps some of them wrongly thought, well, if Jesus is coming soon, then why do I need to go to work? I'm just going to hang out and wait till Jesus comes because... You know, why would I want to waste my time working? I'm just going to sit here and and pray and and just wait for the Lord to come. That's one thought that people have had about why this idleness was such an issue. 
Others have said, no, that perhaps it was because the city of Thessalonica, located there in, in modern-day Greece, that the, the Greeks had a thinking about manual labor, that, that it was basically below them. That if you had to work with your hands, if you had to do some kind of, of manual labor to sustain your, yourself, that that was a lowly place to be. And so the Greek mentality, perhaps it infected the church here, and they were thinking about labor as something that was beneath them. But whatever the reason for uh, this issue of idleness, they had some in their midst who were basically acting as leeches upon the church. They, they were basically acting as though they didn't have to work and they were just feeding off of the resources of the body and it was causing all kinds of issues. And folks, we live in a culture today where many are just feeding off the resources of others. And we have many in political positions today who would actually further that kind of a cause, who would be leading us down a, a road of socialism that would actually encourage folks to feed off of the system. And yet Paul is showing us here there is something good and godly about good old-fashioned hard work. And he wants to lay it before them. So let's run back for a moment the book of Genesis and see God's foundation for work. First, we want to remind ourselves that work was a part of God's original created pattern. Again, work didn't come into the world as a result of sin. There's a part of work that we'll talk about in a moment that came into the world as a result of sin. But work in and of itself predates sin. We see it in Genesis chapter 2 in, the, in God's good and perfect creation. It says that the Lord God took the man, that first man, Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To labor in it and to take care of it. A stewardship was given to Adam. And part of that stewardship was that he was to work. And so work is a part of God's good created order. And so whatever you find yourselves doing in terms of a job or a, or a vocation, you, you can see that this is a part of God's good pattern for the world that he has made. Now we know. That sin came into the world, Genesis chapter 3, and has corrupted everything in the world, including work. And so sin caused work to become painful, but work continued to be purposeful. Don't miss that. That while sin, when sin came into the world, it caused our work to become painful, to, to have a, an addition of toil, blood, sweat, and tears associated with our work now. There's an element of work that's just hard in a sin-broken world. But there's still great purpose in the work that God gives us to do. Genesis 3, 19. This is after sin came into the world, God said to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, we often think about Genesis 3.19 in terms of God's judgment upon Adam, but I also want you to see the grace here. There's a beautiful grace here when God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread, 
The good news is there's going to be bread on the table. How is there going to be bread on the table? Because you're going to work. And there is something good and God honoring about an honest day's work. We need to be reminded of that church. Yes, sin has corrupted work just like it's corrupted everything in God's good creation. But there is still something good and God honoring, even glorious about our work. But he also reminds them as we get into verses 14 and 15 that there is a penalty to be avoided here for to spurn God's good plan is to earn the penalty. This is one of the places in Scripture. There's several we could go to this morning, but this is one of the places in Scripture that's addressing this thing called church discipline. Unfortunately, we're living in a day where church discipline has fallen upon hard times in the modern day church, particularly the American church. We do not practice church discipline like we once did, and we are paying the penalty. Like, like so many families in our culture today that are not practicing discipline with their children, and we're seeing the rampant effects of undisciplined children in our culture right now, that the same is true in the church. The children of God are not residing under discipline, and it's causing all kinds of disorderliness. So where God's good created order was for us to work hard and to honor God in our labors, that there's a disorderliness that comes when we don't fulfill what God has given us to do. And to spurn God's plan is to earn the penalty. And so as we look at verses 14 and 15, it sounds a little bit harsh to our ears and maybe harsh to our sensibilities. But he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, and I think he's particularly here talking about this issue of idleness, Take note of that person. Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. And that sounds harsh to us, but stay with me for a moment. That he may be ashamed. And notice the grace in verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, because that would be our temptation. In, in, in discipline, there's always a temptation to regard the one under discipline like an enemy. But he says, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Warn him as a brother. This is familial discipline that we're talking about here. The church is the family of God. And like any good family that's honoring God, where there's going to be discipline there, the father disciplines the one that he loves. The same is going to be true in the church family. And so we don't look upon those, whether it's idleness or any other number of sins that we might talk about, we don't look upon that and just say, well, that's just their problem. I, I can't really do anything about that. No, the call upon the church is to care enough about one another that we would look to one another and hold one another accountable, take note of the sin that's causing disorder and destruction in the body, and not just sit back and pretend like it's no big deal. Particularly this issue of idleness. The old hymn writer Isaac Watts in kind of a sing-song way said, For Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. We've heard idle hands of the devil's workshop, haven't we? Many of you grew up with that saying as I did. It's a reminder to us. God has given each of us work to do. Now it's going to be different for each person. 
But Paul here is addressing those who were unwilling to do the work that God has both given them the ability and the calling to do. They are sitting back and leaning upon the church body. They are leeches among the body of Christ and it's causing great disorder and problems among the body. And his call to them is, get to work, guys. Do what God has given you to do. You may not be able to do what another brother or sister can do, perhaps because of your ability, perhaps because of your education, perhaps because of various circumstances, but do what God has given you to do. And be reminded, Proverbs 19.15, the warning, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep. An idle person will suffer hunger. Where would that thought come from? It came directly from the grace found in Genesis 3.19. You, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. And the opposite is also true. The idle person will suffer hunger. There's this direct correlation by God's grace between our work and there being food on the table. And we ought to give thanks for that. And so he begins to conclude this letter with an earnest warning about idleness. He goes on to put before them an example worthy of imitation. An example worthy of imitation. And so in verses 7 through 9 there, he says to them, You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. You know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but it was to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Christian leadership must be by example. We see this again and again in the scriptures. Those who are leaders in the church cannot simply say, do as I say and not as I do. They must set an example both in their words and in their actions. And that's exactly what Paul is commending here by his own example. It's not Paul pridefully holding up his own example and saying, look at me and how wonderful I am. But what he's saying is, look at my example and follow Christ as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The truth is, church, we all need these kinds of examples in our lives. We need examples in our lives to teach us how to pray, to teach us how to study the Word of God, to teach us how to walk out the things that we find in the Word of God. And by God's grace, He gives us good and godly examples. And Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica, look to my example and see what God would have for you in it. He reminds them in verse 8 that we work to not become a burden. He said we didn't want to be a burden to any of you. We didn't want to be leeches upon the body. We work not to become a burden. And we, we also work. We also work to bear the burdens of others. You see this is where Christian work goes above and beyond. Even our society's best understanding of the pur- purpose of work. You see our society understands work so you can put food on your table. Our society doesn't understand the opportunity we've been given 
to work so that we might also put food on the tables of those who cannot work. Who are unable to provide for themselves. That our work provides us with an opportunity, not just for self-fulfillment and filling our own bellies, but for generosity and meeting the needs of others. Do we, do we think about our work that way? That our work is an opportunity for us then to be generous and to meet the needs of others? How often do we think about our work in that way? That I'm not just working for myself, not just working to put food on my table, but I'm working that I might then be able to meet the needs of those who can't meet their own needs. And again, not those who are unwilling. Let's let's divide, let's just draw a sharp distinction this morning between those who are unwilling to work. Those are the idol that, that he is warning in this passage and those who are unable to work. There is a great distinction here that we need to maintain. We also need to be, need to be reminded of the call of, Genesis, of Galatians 6, Galatians 6, 2, to bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Unfortunately, here's, here's what I see so often in the church today, and, and even particularly in our church. Even this week, in one of our families that was going through just a great difficulty, and, and they made this comment, we, we just don't want to be a burden to anyone. Let me say to you, church, When we refuse to share our burdens with one another, we are keeping one another from obedience to Christ. Let me say that to us again because we don't think this way. So many of us, we've become so self-sufficient. We don't want to, we say, oh, I just don't want to be a burden to anyone. I want to say to us, there's a pride in that. Because when we can bear one of those burdens, it says we are fulfilling the law of Christ. There is a, an obedience that comes when we see a brother or sister in need and we can step in and meet that need. So, so when you fall into that category of saying, well, I just don't want to be a burden to anyone. Here's what I want you to think next time you get in that mode. Next time you get in that mode, I want you to think this. I really, what I'm really saying is I want to keep others from obedience to Jesus. And you say, Pastor, that sounds a little harsh. No, it just sounds biblical to me. Because when we bear one another's burdens, we're reminding ourselves none of us are self-sufficient. I'm so thankful for those of you that brought us meals and one dear lady who brought us the best cookies on the planet. She knows who she is. While we were stuck at home with COVID and recovering from that, I'm so thankful that some of you came alongside of us in that time and and bore that burden with us. In our times of weakness, we we don't just need to buck up and, and try to do everything ourselves. We need to lean. That's when we lean into the body. You see, the idol are those who were leaning into the body when they didn't have that need. They could have put bread on their own table. They could have been eating their own bread. They were just eating everybody else's bread, and it was causing disorder in the church. There's also a place where those who are truly in need, when they need the body, we need to lean in to share our burdens, that others might bear our burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But Paul makes a statement in verse 9 that I want to spend just a little bit of time with. It's important for our understanding and thinking about what he's doing here. He says, it was not because we don't have that right, the right to making a living by the gospel, 
but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the fact that they had refused their right to remuneration. They, they had refused the right that Paul holds up in 1 Corinthians 9. You might just want to jot down 1 Corinthians 9 and go read what Paul says there about the fact that those who, uh, who, who preach the gospel have the right to make their living by the gospel. So some would wrongly understand Paul here setting an example for, for all who would preach the gospel and saying, well, well, preachers should also all be, as we might call it, by vocation. Or, or make their living elsewhere. And that's, that's not necessarily what he's talking about here because he says those who preach the gospel have the right to make their living by the gospel. But what Paul had done and what his companions here had done was they had set aside that right that they might set before this church that was plagued with idleness an example of what it looks like to work hard. So Paul, as a tent maker, continued in his trade, even though he had every right to make his living from the preaching of the gospel, to be supported financially by the church. There were other times when Paul did receive financial support from the churches, but in this instance, in the wisdom God gave him, he set aside that right for the good of others. He said, that's what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Walking with Jesus looks like setting aside our rights if it's going to be for the good of others. Now, we, I know how we are as Americans. We cling to our rights, and so we should. But there is something good and godly when we can set aside a right that we have in order that others might benefit. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I had every right to receive the financial support of the church, and no one would have thought less of him if he did But he said, I set aside that right in order to set you an example of what it looks like to work hard. Because some among you were idle. Similar thought is in Colossians 3 where Paul writes, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That man, that would change our perspective on so many of our jobs, wouldn't it? not working for the man i'm working for the lord knowing that from the lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward that's better than any paycheck folks you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the lord christ so whether you are a doctor or a lawyer or flipping hamburgers at mcdonald's wherever you are this is what levels the playing field whether you're making six figures or 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 barely making five whatever wherever you find yourself in that perspective he's saying this is what it looks like as a christian to work hard whatever you're doing wherever god has put you whatever he has called you to work heartily as to the lord and from there you're going to receive a great and glorious inheritance forever which by the way let me just say this to us part of that inheritance will involve work i I don't know what your thoughts about heaven are but i don't see a description of the eternal state in scripture where we're all just going to be sitting around on, on clouds playing harps and lazing around all the day Heaven is not going to be the eternal fishing trip or the eternal golf game or whatever mentality that we have. We're not going on one extended retirement or or some extended vacation when we go to be with the Lord forever. I think the word is very clear that there will be work for us to do. Now it will be work without toil. It will be work without pain. 
It will be work without all the frustrations that come with work in a sinful world. But from the very beginning, God gave work as a part of his good created order. And so when we get back to God's good created order in the eternal state, why would there, why would we think that there wouldn't be work for us to do? To the glory of God. Finally, this morning, I'm going to have to fly through this last part, but he leaves them with an encouraging word, and particularly an encouraging word for the intimidated. The Thessalonian church, and I would say our churches today, there is much to that we could be afraid of, that we could be fearful and anxious about. I'm looking forward to, we're going to spend about seven weeks uh, here, starting a couple of weeks from now, working through a series on, on anxiety and fear and how we as Christians can walk differently than the world. Our world is eat up with anxiety right now, if you hadn't noticed. It's everywhere. It's, it's eating us up quicker than COVID ever will. The anxiety is eating us up, and we want to know biblically how to walk in that. And really, Paul here is giving at the end of this letter an encouragement for those who are intimidated, those who are fearful. They were fearful because they were persecuted. They were fearful because following Jesus might cost them their lives. They were like believers in Afghanistan today who were continuing there and courageous before the Lord, but knowing it may very well cost them their lives to follow Jesus. They were fearful and intimidated because false teaching was abounding. We saw that in chapter 2, false teaching was abounding. And the same is true in the church today. False teaching is abundant in the church today. That's why we have to be like the Bereans and constantly go back to the Word of God to see if what the preacher said is lining up with what our great shepherd has already said. Is this lining up with the Word of God? So false teaching was abounding. And, and even here in this chapter, there was a, a fear and an anxiety related to the disorderly, disorderliness that had crept up in the church. These who were lazing around and leeching off the body... And so it was causing anxiety and fear among the people. So Paul, at the end of each of these chapters, has left them with some encouraging words in the form of a prayer. You remember in 1 Thessalonians, he ended each of those chapters with a reminder of the coming of Christ. In each of these chapters in 2 Thessalonians, he leaves them with a short prayer to remind them of where their hope lies. And church, we need those reminders this morning, so let me show you real quickly. First of all, because of the persecutors of the church, Paul prayed for their perseverance. Now, our temptation, when we think about persecution, is to pray for protection. We idolize health and safety so much in this culture, but Paul prays for their perseverance. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. He said, To this end, we always pray for you. How does he pray for them? That our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even what Matt preached at the end of his message last week, chapter Chapter 3 verse 5 may the lord direct your hearts to the love of god and the steadfastness the the perseverance the endurance of christ that he is steadfast and so can we but he also as 
we saw in chapter 2 as they were dealing with false teaching and the fear that came along with that. Because of the deception that was impacting the church, because of the false teaching that was impacting the church, he prayed for their dedication to the truth. What do we do in the face of false teaching? We keep running back to the truth. So for those who are trying to redefine God's good and faithful plan for marriage in our culture today, we keep running back to the truth. For those who are trying to put before us a a socialistic ideal for our economy and for our lives, we keep running back to the truth. Again and again, how do we face the false teaching of our day? For those who would preach a health and wealth prosperity gospel that is inches deep and miles wide, but has no good, is no good for the people of God, we keep running back to the truth of the gospel. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, So then, brothers, stand firm. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter and in this prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. How will we be established in every good work and word? By running back to the truth again and again and again. And finally, because of the problems within the church, what we've seen here in chapter 3, he prays for their peace in the Lord's presence. I want you to look at verse 16. He prays, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. In all circumstances in every possible way that peace can be manifested among the people of God. He's praying, Lord, would you give them peace? But then he also recognizes, look at the last word there, the Lord be with you all. He recognizes this truth that we need to be reminded of. The peace of God will not be found apart from the presence of God. Perhaps somebody needs to hear that this morning. The peace of God If your heart is yearning for peace, if you are in turmoil and conflict and have anything but peace, I want you to understand very clearly this morning, you will not find the peace of God, which is the only true peace. There is a false peace that the world offers. You will not find the true peace of God apart from the presence of God. But the presence of God comes to those who trust Christ by faith and so i'll leave you with romans 5 love this verse therefore since we have been justified by faith there's a finished work here justified by faith we've been declared righteous before god because of what jesus christ did on our behalf at the cross and what's the result of that we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ We have peace with God. And if we have truly have peace with God, then there is no reason for us not to be at peace in every other relationship, in every other area, in every other circumstance. He prayed that we would have peace at all times in every way that peace is found in his presence. So let us dwell there.
And this King who is our peace invites us to come and to dwell at His table. To come to the King's table, which is also our family table. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, this table is your table. Yes, it's the Lord's table, but He has invited you to come and to eat with Him and to drink with Him, to enjoy fellowship with Him in His presence. That's where peace is to be found. And so as we prepare to come to the table today, I'd like us to pray. And I'm going to give us some instructions. Grant's going to lead us in a song. And then we're going to remind ourselves of where true peace is to be found. It's not found in the promises of this world. It's found in the presence of our God. Father God, help us today. Help us to walk in this peace that you have secured for us through the cross of Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. We do not have to languish in anxiety and insecurity because You have finished a work on our behalf that cannot be undone. We have peace with God through faith in Jesus. We have the presence of Christ with us and dwelling in us in the Holy Spirit. We have everything necessary that we might live lives of godliness, that we might glorify you in our work and in our actions, in our thoughts and in our deeds. And so we come to this table rejoicing today giving you great thanks for what you have done on our behalf, reminding ourselves that the body of our Savior was broken, His blood was shed so that we could be redeemed, brought back into right relationship with you, our God. Father, as we come to this table today, may we come joyfully, may we come eagerly, May we come and receive from your hand the encouragement to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. To trust you for greater things yet to come. Even as we come, we pray. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, keep us faithful. In Jesus' name.